When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. And welcome back into the Bama on Three Show. This is your host, Clint Lamb, sitting here once again with Jimmy Stein. Jimmy, it's been a while. We decided to take, or I did. It wasn't really, you know, you're very go with the flow, man. If I hit you up one morning. You know, I mean, you've got doctor's appointments and things you got to go to sometimes. Sometimes you're on the road. But, I mean, I could ask you pretty much any time, any day, and you're like, hey, I got you. We can make this work. Let's make it happen. Me, on the other hand, I just uh, shifted focus a little bit more towards the writing side and making sure the website's up to date. And we're keeping plenty of content on there. Got that locked and loaded. We got tons of stuff over at BCS Alabama that you need to go check out. You on the message boards have been keeping, first of all, and part of me, we're going to be doing spring position previews next week. And we're going to be doing an offensive position and a defensive position every single day. So if you've kind of had, you know, a niche for the Bama on three show, haven't been able to scratch it the last couple of weeks, we're going to make up for it. We're doing an episode every single day next week. Going to be bringing you guys some great content. Part of me thought about just using your list. I'm loving the the spring rankings that you got going on, the roster rankings. It's incredible. I think it's very interesting. Some of it, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm a little bit higher on this guy. I'm a little bit lower on this guy, you know, but that's the entire point. And I think that it would make for great conversation. And I don't think you're being outlandish at all with anything that I've seen thus far. You know, if you have Bryce Young coming in at number 49, we might have to talk. But uh, outside of that, it's all very Spoiler alert, he's not. He's going to be one or two. But I'll tell you this, uh, you know, I'm doing I, I, I've, I've got my list in uh, kind of what I would call rudimentary form in terms of it written down because I'm doing six or seven guys. a day. I'm covering six or seven guys a day uh, until until we get number one. I've not decided uh, who I'm going to rank number one. Obviously, it's going to be Bryce or Will Anderson uh, at number one. But I take the list real seriously, even though I'm open to I want people to say, hey, I don't agree with this. I would do it this way. I want people to do that because that's the way I get better. I mean, I, I'm I'm always open to, hey, this is how I think about it. Somebody somebody convince me I'm wrong, and I'll change my mind. Um, so I, I'm giving a, a lot of thought. It's crazy that we could win a Heisman Trophy or Bryce could win a Heisman and him not be number one. But uh, you know, right now, if I had to pick today, I'm leaning to Will. But uh, I, I'll give it more thought as as the days go on. But I really enjoy putting the list together. I mentioned uh, I really appreciate you uh, mentioning it. Oh, absolutely. I've loved reading it because it's not just a, a ranking where you just list them. You go on, you know, each individual player kind of where, you know, your thought process is that with that player. And I just find that stuff fascinating. You're doing a great job with it and I've enjoyed reading it. And I mean, it's totally your rankings are your rankings. You know, I mean, I don't think people prior to, you know, spring a couple of years ago, uh, if you would have said, okay, where are you ranking DJ Dell compared to all the rest of that defensive line class, you know, in overall roster rankings, right. he would have been way down the list and he ended up being, you know, the true freshman starter. Uh, if you would right. have said going, you know, into last spring, if you'd have been like, okay, with all those talented receivers that they got coming in for the spring, you know, where do you got a guy like Jojo Earl probably way down there. Cause he's not an early enrollee. 
and they've got a lot of other players who are ranked high as well at that position. Plus, they got, you know, John Mechie coming back. They had Jamison Williams coming back. So you might have had JoJo Earl a little bit further down the list. He ended up being a co-starter on day one. Now, granted, the impact that he actually made maybe wasn't what a lot of people expected once that kind of development started to happen. But my point is, some of these guys that you've got ranked a little bit higher or maybe a little bit lower, you know, you never know what's going to happen. It's your rankings. And I think that, like I said, there's a couple that I would say, okay, I'm a little bit higher on this guy or whatever, but it's it's nothing outlandish at all. And I've just, I love stuff like that. And I thought it was really cool from the time that I saw the first one, I was like, this is going to be my, my pretty much my daily read. So I've enjoyed uh, reading that stuff so far. And so I thought about just making that the podcast and that's just bringing down your rankings, discussing. And I thought, well, you know, we can do that a little bit with the position previews and you can even highlight some of the guys, you know, I have him ranked, you know, here or there in my rankings and we can, you know, hash it out that way. But, you know, going over all the different positions, I just thought giving people a quarterback, you know, uh, linebacker, you know, corner, wide receiver, all that, you know, just breaking down every single position would be very valuable. And so, by the way, before we get into the rest of the episode, this is the schedule for next week. On Monday, we're going to be talking about the quarterbacks and the pass rushers or the outside linebackers, the exterior pass rush. On Tuesday, we're going to be talking about the wide receivers and the cornerbacks. Wednesday, offensive line, defensive line. Thursday, running back, linebacker. And then Friday, before the first practice, we're expecting it to start on March 11th. Don't know that. Haven't had it confirmed by Alabama. But that's the belief. But on Friday, before the practice gets started if that ends up being the case we're hoping to get safeties and tight ends uh, out as well and then you know they'll have a practice they'll break for spring break you can go through and listen to all those and kind of get caught up before the second spring practice and then you'll kind of know what to expect so jimmy as far as some recent news like i said we have taken a couple weeks off we do have some mailbag questions that we're going to be answering today but before we do that we wanted to at least touch on some of these you know newsworthy topics uh matt ray is choosing to go to the New Orleans Saints. What are your thoughts on him departing, what that means for Alabama strength and conditioning staff? Yeah, uh, any huge reaction would be an overreaction, I think. I mean, I I do think Dr. Ray deserves a lot of credit for helping Alabama move to the next level in strength and conditioning, particularly the scientific aspect of it. I'm sure he's been a huge help to everyone in the building in terms of of the new modern wave of, of how this is done. kind of, you know, pushing us from old school into the new school. Uh, But but he's trained us on that. And there are people in the building that now know it well, and uh, including his his partner, uh, you know, David Ballou, who's, you know, he understands that stuff really well, too. And uh, and he's going to be just kind of the new boss. Let's remember this. You know, we replaced Scott Cochran with two guys. That doesn't mean that the new thing is having two guys. The, the, the new thing's the same as the old thing, one guy. And now we got one guy, and, and he, he understands the old school part of it. He understands the new school part of it. So this is not a huge blow to Alabama at all. And obviously, uh, Dr. Ray wanted to try something else. Uh, he wanted, you know, uh, the, the call of the NFL is strong. And uh, it's actually, believe it or not, less hours uh, than the college game. Um, all those NFL guys have their own strength gurus that they – they use uh so real interesting that that and and hey uh you know college football is not for everybody working for alabama is not for everybody uh this is just what he chose to do i do know alabama wanted him to stay and tried to talk him into staying and uh and and he instead uh after much deliberation chose the nfl uh so and and blue did not blue's gonna stay so uh a blow sure a huge blow no 
no, I, I think Alabama's in good hands with uh, with Ballou and the uh, staff that, that uh, Dr. Ray has left behind. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, it's definitely worth talking about. That was a, a duo at IMG Academy. They were a duo at Indiana. They've been working together for a while, but I also think that that is positioned both of them to go find success on their own. Uh, they've learned from each other. They've taken, you know, ideas and, and uh, strategies and implemented them. They know a lot about the other one and how that kind of they think. And, and so they can take that and, and go and, and thrive on their own. And I think the fact that Alabama had both of them, it feels like a loss losing one of them. And, you know, if they both would have been with the Saints and one of them would have come over to Alabama, people probably would have viewed it a lot differently. But I think that they're going to be just fine. It's, it's not something that if I was a fan, I would be concerned about. Remember, everybody freaked out over losing Scott Cochran. And, yeah. I mean, not taking a shot at anybody, but it worked out just fine. It, it wasn't a problem, uh, and it will continue to not be a problem. You've got the best, some of the best athletes in the world, or at least in college football, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. They should have a winning mentality and are ready to go to work. If you're a strength coach and you halfway know what you're doing, you should be able to have success with those guys. I've seen people talk about the the ACL injuries to John Mechie and Jamison Williams and say, well, I don't think it's good that we saw those two torn ACLs. It, it, that's turf field related. I mean, that's not anything strength and conditioning. It's a huge problem. NFL level, college level, they've got to start doing something about those turf fields. So th- that has nothing to do with David Ballou or Matt Ray or, or anybody else um, in the strength and conditioning program. It's just an unfortunate circumstance that ends up happening sometimes. But uh, the other one of the other big topics we got a couple more before we answer these questions is uh, Alabama's analyst, and and we're not going to dive in super deep into a lot of these. But I mean, there's so many that's worth mentioning. Todd Grantham, former Florida defense coordinator, he's been at Georgia, he's been at you know Mississippi State, he's been at Louisville, been a defense coordinator on the college level for ten plus years, has been on the NFL level as well. He's going to be joining as a defensive analyst, Derek Dooley the former Tennessee head coach, he's joining Zach Mettenberger, the former LSU quarterback. I think we might've touched on him a little bit in the last episode. If I'm not mistaken, I think that had just been announced, but I'm not entirely sure. But then you also got Cornelius Washington, the, you know, Auburn wide receiver coach that was, I think he was fired like four games in to last season in Brian Harson's first stint. Could be wrong on the number of games. I just remember he got let go quite early and that was met with a lot of criticism but not from uh, not on his part necessarily, but on Brian Harson's part for really not giving him a whole lot of time. But he's also joining Alabama staff as well. So they've they're built. And granted, there's other guys. Nick McGriff. He's going to be joining Ole Miss. He was at Ole Miss. He, you know, has has done some things. You know, kind of an up and comer, I guess you'd say. So just talk about the analyst very quickly and your thoughts on on the collection that they've gotten. Yeah, just one thing. Uh, I would just encourage people. Because uh, I've seen some opinions, and I know it's a minority, it's a small amount of people, but I just want to encourage people to realize what we're hiring these guys to do. Uh, you know, any criticism of hiring Todd Grantham because maybe his Florida defense wasn't so great last year or the year before. Uh, he, he, we're not hiring uh, Grantham to be the uh, the new defensive coordinator replacing uh, Pete. No, he, he's an analyst. He's just another set of eyes. He's a, a counselor. Uh, someone that can give us some advice, someone that can do the dirty work, someone that can save Golding some time with administrative things. Uh, uh, you know, we're not hiring to be defensive coordinator. We're not hiring Derek Dooley to be the new head coach uh, with his extensive experience now in the NFL as an offensive coordinator. And by the way, I thought Dooley did a really good job as OC at Missouri when he was there. Uh, 
he's been around football his whole life. These, these are really good hires for what we're hiring them to do. Uh, and, and people that are like, gosh, Dooley was a horrible head coach. Why are we bringing him in here? Well, we're not bringing him in to be the head coach. <laughs> we're bringing him in to do something else. We're not even and, bringing him in to, to call plays. I mean, it's not like they're, they're handing the keys to the offense to the guy. This guy's going to have a very small role in just and, – and it's amazing that there's a reason that he was asked to be the, you know, the head coach of Tennessee there for a while. There was a reason he was asked to be the play caller and the offense coordinator at Missouri. There's a reason that Todd Grantham, despite the fact that his defense really struggled there at Florida – there's a reason that he has been a defensive coordinator for the past decade. He's seen about everything that, that you could possibly throw at him. You know, from an offense perspective, he went against Alabama in the SEC championship. Like, he's he had success at Mississippi State back in 2017 as the defensive coordinator with Dan Mullen. This guy's seen a lot, and just asking him to do very specific things and help game plan, really, a lot of times your analysts and stuff, you're bringing up guys that really don't have any of this experience. And you're asking them to perform very simple, very specific task to help you prepare. But instead of having these new up-and-comers that don't really know what they're doing and what to look for and they're learning on the fly, you've got 10-plus-year veteran defensive coordinators doing that for you. That's that's always going to be a positive, Jimmy. And and it's a huge in recruiting. This is what a lot of people don't realize. You know, everything that, that Coach Saban does about recruiting, really. And we didn't hire these guys specifically to recruit, but they have name recognition with prospects. Prospects know who they are in general, and that can help. You know, when hey, when 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 you meet Derek Dooley and he's like, Yeah, I worked for the Dallas Cowboys for six years. I, I mean, that that's a big deal to these kids. And then beyond that, recruiting means, you know, these guys are brand new. They walk into the recruiting room and they see the big board. And we got 120 names on it. And and Bob Welton, like the director of recruiting, is like, uh, hey, here's the 120 guys really focusing on right now in the 23 class. And they look up at the board. Somebody like a Todd Grantham can look up at the board and say, oh, yeah, that linebacker, I know his family. Or, oh, the head coach, hey, that guy that's number one on the board at offensive tackle, uh, his high school coach was in my wedding. I'm, I mean, yep. there are all sorts of contacts these guys have recruiting-wise. They know some of the kids. They know their families. They know their high school coaches. And then they can pitch in and help with that end of it, too. So hiring these really experienced coaches is, is a huge help with recruiting, not just for their name, but who they know. Uh, and I remember when we hired Butch Jones, I said the same thing. And, and really behind the scenes, that was true. Uh, but Butch Jones been a head coach for so long. He knew about every high school football coach in the country. That, uh, that really helps. Well, I think what it is, because of the moves that they've made in the past, they think there's a clear line to that coach becoming a coordinator. For example, Steve Sarkeesian comes in as an offensive analyst. The, the right. goal is to groom him to take over for Lane Kiffin. You know, and, and, you know, Charlie Strong, when he got brought on to the staff as a defensive analyst, the idea was, hey, Pete Golding, if you don't get your, you know, stuff together, you know, we're going to make Charlie Strong our defense coordinator. That's not always the case. That didn't happen with Charlie Strong. He left after, what was it, just a year, if I'm not mistaken, maybe two, but I think it was just one, to go be the a position coach for the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's, and yes, Steve Sarkeesian was groomed to eventually take over, but it, people are looking at Todd Grantham and they're thinking in their head, wait a minute, this is them grooming Todd Grantham to eventually take over for Pete Golding, or this is them grooming Derek Dooley to eventually take over as the offense coordinator. And I, at least I think that that's some fans' mentality. They think that where they're at now is not where they're going to be next year, the year after, or whatever. 
but the only way that they're getting hired into Alabama staff in a permanent position coach or as a coordinator is if they are doing great things behind the scenes and Nick Saban believes in what they're doing. So they would have earned the opportunity to do that, and you should go ahead and trust Nick Saban. Uh, so I just don't think it's as big of a deal as people you know, like to make it out to be. They're analysts. They're going to be involved in the game planning. They're going to do things to help prepare. And the more set of eyes that you can put on something, you can see yep. more stuff, identify it, and then be able to exploit it. And so having guys who know what to look for, like a Todd Grantham, he has game planned for over you know a decade, and he's seen everything in, the, yeah. in this league. He you know he knows the, the the personnel and the coaches of the other programs. Uh, just you can't get a more experienced set of eyes. Exactly. I mean, this guy wasn't at Louisiana Tech, and you're bringing him over. You know, this guy was at Florida. He was going against Georgia's offense. He was going against Tennessee with Hendon Hooker. He saw that you know that offense with Josh Heupel. He saw. So many things. He saw Alabama's offense when they went against each uh, other in the SEC championship. So the, my point is that's the guy who's going to be sitting down and he's got, hey, this is – go find us some things that you that we can exploit this week. He's going to be able to bring some great insight to the table. So it, it's, it's a positive for Alabama. Not a whole lot of other schools are able to do this where you're bringing in very high-profile analysts. They're going with that younger, you know, up-and-comer type of – you know, approach. And I think that gives Alabama a huge advantage when it comes to game planning for opponents. So you should never complain about it uh, at all. And then you've got the guys like Zach Mettenberger who don't have a lot of experience. Now he's, he's watched film, he's played in the NFL, but he's a guy that more is like, okay, maybe he could turn, you know, end up being something, right. You can turn him into an offensive coordinator. Eventually this is the stepping stone that allows him to get some, you know, quality experience under his belt. I think he'll be able to bring some stuff to the table, but you know, his is more of a developing and learning kind of thing and just seeing what you got. And we, we've seen Alabama do that with other analysts, you know, AJ Milley, that was one, uh, Rob Ezel. Now that the tight ends coach at South Alabama, he was one. So you see that every once in a while as well. It's not that they just go with the experienced guys, but they have a great blend of new and old. And so that's, you know, I think that's only a positive. Uh, last thing we'll cover before we get into these uh, couple of questions that we got from the mailbag the NFL combine and we're finally going to get to see some on field work today. Don't really like the fact that it's late in the day. Like this yeah. year, all the stuff is starting much later. It used to be, you know, in the mornings and I enjoyed waking up. It was, it, I wouldn't say it felt like Christmas. I think that's the NFL draft. I think that's the first day of college football, but it certainly, uh, it, it was just a great way to wake up and know that, you, you know, within 30 minutes, an hour after you wake up, you're watching uh, guys, you know, try to change their lives, and Alabama's got a ton of them involved. Alabama has 11, I think, at the combine. Right. Evan Neal's not going to be working out. Jamison Williams, John Mechie, they're not going to be working out, obviously, you know, for injury purposes. Uh, so, Jimmy, just your th – I mean, you said that you've been watching the NFL combine pretty much all week and keeping your ear down to it. What have you seen and heard? I'm just real excited. I agree with you. I, I don't like that it's moved into prime time at all because there's so many viewing options out, th out there and maybe I'm just being super selfish because I am able to watch it at all, uh, you know, in the morning or the afternoon and, and, and not, not wait on it till tonight, but yeah, they're, they're moving it to prime time. They, they, they feel they'll get better, bigger uh, ratings, um, you know, with the, with the, with the big time events being and during prime time viewing America loves the draft. So NFL network is betting that America might love the combine too. Uh, in terms of our guys, uh, you know, I wrote on Crimson Coffee this morning, uh, you know, for those who, who, who are listening to this that, that haven't read it, 
uh, it occurred to me I was just going to write about the receivers because today is just the receivers for Alabama, Mechie Williams and, and Bolden. And Mechie and Williams won't be able to, to run or work out. And, and that's when it occurred to me about the injury situation for the whole group. It's amazing what Alabama was able to accomplish. We have 11 guys at the combine. I counted up, and, and, and again, we did the story this morning. Seven of the 11 missed significant time this season. Seven of the 11. We're not talking about just a random 11 dudes off the team. These are your upperclassmen who are one step short of the NFL. The success of your team should be on the backs of these guys. These guys are the reason you win the games. And seven of the 11 were hurt at some point, if not for the entire season. Christopher Allen was lost in the first quarter of the first game. Uh, You know, we didn't have Jamison Williams when the whole season came down to one half of football. We didn't have J-Mo. Mechie was gone for the whole playoffs. Brian Robinson, you're like, oh, man, he stayed remarkably healthy considering he's the back. He did, but he was so banged up against Georgia the first time around, we had to literally build a game plan around the fact that he wasn't going to be out there. Um, So he – LeBron Ray, uh, I made, you know, half a joke, but I'm like, LeBron Ray is probably as healthy today as we've seen him since we watched his huddle film in high school. I mean, we we really had a healthy LeBron Ray, certainly not this year. He missed a few games even in September. Both cornerbacks gone for the postseason in Job and Jalen Armour Davis. It's just incredible that, again, you build your team on the backs of the upperclassmen who are ready to play in the NFL. And, and in that group, seven of the 11 missed crucial time uh, with the football team, and we still won the SEC, still made it the national championship, still led the national championship game at halftime, and was only one score down with a minute and a half left in the game. Uh, incredible, incredible job Nick Saban uh, does with Alabama's program. It, it just can't be exaggerated. And, you know, Jamison Williams yesterday at the combine was, I don't know what the question, how it was phrased, but essentially, he said that he felt like that if he doesn't miss or doesn't have to exit the national championship game that Alabama wins. And a lot of Georgia fans have run with that and just really, you know, give me a break. We had this guy out. We had that guy out. You know, that's a, that's absurd and, and really trolled Alabama as a result. It's uh, it, I think that he makes a very valid point. And here's the thing. If, if Brock Bowers goes out, in that game against Alabama and Brock Bowers ended up not doing a whole lot, but his presence just being out there for Georgia based off of what he was able to do in that first matchup immediately made Alabama's defense and the way that they were scheming against Georgia's offense. They respected Brock Bowers. They had to do certain things and take away from other areas to make sure they were trying to contain him. If you take him out of that game plan, are you telling me that if Alabama ends up winning, that Georgia fans aren't pointing to that and saying, hey, if we don't lose Brock Bowers, like before he goes out of the game, Georgia was right there. They were only down by three. They were only down by six. We saw what he did in that first game against Alabama. It would have been a completely different ballgame. Are you telling me that Georgia fans would not be doing the exact same thing had a player of that? And people were talking about George Pickens and, you know, other, you know, Jamari Salyer and all these guys. First of all, a lot of them played. They weren't 100%. George Pickens wasn't 100%. But it's like I've said before, they had the entire season to adjust to life without George Pickens. They made it to the national championship game, essentially without George Pickens. Alabama made it to the national title because of, not just just because of, but 
two of the main parts of Alabama getting to the title was John Mechie and Jamison Williams. They lose one, and then they go against a team in Cincinnati who Alabama could run the football at will based off of, you know, their defense, the front being undersized, the way that they scheme as far as their, you know, uh, front seven. Alabama was able to run the football. You didn't see the impact of losing players like, or losing a player like John Mechie. Then, and people say, well, look at what he, you know, Alabama was still struggling in the, that, you know, time that he was on the field. How many times do we see Alabama struggle offensively early in a football game this past season? And what was the spark? What was the thing that got Alabama's offense going? It was a huge explosive play to Jameson Williams. And from there, the offense is rolling. Now the defense is like, whoa, we thought we were respecting Jameson Williams. This cat's way better than we thought even that he was on tape. We've got to make sure that we're limiting that. And it starts opening up everything else on that play, on that explosive play where Jamison Williams was able to, you know, turn a 40-yard gain. He gets hurt. And so that adjustment that Georgia was about to have to make, even more so to say we're going to respect this even more, we can't allow that kind of thing to happen again. Now they, they're like, we don't have to make any adjustments. In fact, we, the adjustments that we had made to respect him as much as we had, we can dial that back a little bit because he's no longer in this ballgame. And guess what? Jameson Williams didn't either. So the, who are we threatened by? Where is the strain on our defense from Alabama's passing game? It, it, tell me the player that was that was worrying Georgia's defense. And when you don't have to worry, you get to focus on just playing football. So it, that's something that I've, I've thought. I'm not, I understand it, it doesn't take anything away from Georgia. Now, I understand where people would take offense to it, but it's okay. Georgia, that, that injuries do happen. And Alabama did lose that game. And Georgia is the reigning national or are the reigning national champions. You can't yeah, take that away from them. Uh, but it's to say that, like, that, you know, Jamison Williams going out, if he wants to believe that his team would have won the ball game, and, it be, and I mean, who are we to deny that? I mean, he was just starting to get things going. He led both teams in receptions. He was tied for the lead. And he led both teams in receiving yards. And he played like a what, just over a quarter or just under a quarter? I don't even remember when he went out. I mean, it was like, Maybe it was before halftime. I don't exactly remember the exact timing of it. But point being, I saw nothing wrong with his comments. If he wants to believe that, part of me agrees with him. And that's not, you know, any kind of Alabama bias. If Georgia would have lost Brock Bowers and they would have said, hey, this game would have been a lot different if he would have been able to be healthy and play because of what he did against Alabama in the SEC championship, then, I mean, I would I have been like, well, I mean, he got a point. I mean, obviously, he, was, he put a huge strain on Alabama's defense the first time around. And they were worried to death uh, leading up to that game and during that game that he was going to start taking it over like he did in the first one. And if you take him out, that's no longer that strain on Alabama's defense. Bottom line. Anyways, um, that was pr a pretty – anyways, uh, I don't – anyways. Hurt us up a little bit. Yeah. All right. We'll go to the mailbag now. Uh, Jimmy, I'm going to go ahead and combine these two questions because they're – both regarding the offensive line, but Steven on Twitter asked, do you think this year's offensive line will ultimately be an improvement over last year's by season end? Thanks guys for the great show. And then Nick, Nick Rossetti on Twitter also asked, what is your prediction for the starting OL this season? Will we see improvement? Best Bama pod available. Keep up the great work. Great question, guys. It's really the question of uh, patting ourselves on the back a little bit about this past season. I think Clint, I both, told told you guys a whole year that the team would go as far as the offensive line would take us uh and and you know we would win the national championship if the offensive line was able to do not be dominant but do their part and and, and they were just short uh 
I, I think they, they really did a remarkable job in terms of getting us to a national championship game. But I think Georgia was just too good for the offensive line at the end. Uh, you know, that Georgia defense is unbelievable, full of great, you know, elite talent. Um, will this group be better? It's, you know, on the, on the one hand, on the surface, I would say no. No, it won't be just because I think it's logical to say, well, you, you know, you, you lost your best player. How, how can you lose the best player who's possibly going to be the number one pick in the draft and still improve? Uh, that doesn't seem logical. But that said, uh, I, am, I can be kind of optimistic person. And, uh, yeah, I, I think they can improve because I, I, I think that they can replace Evan Neal with an adequate replacement and then improve in the other four spots it's not going to be dominant this is this upcoming offensive line will not be confused with Alabama's 2012 offensive line or even the 2020 offensive line it's not going to be that but it can be better Emil Echior for instance will be one of this league's best guards a four-year starter uh, and, and Echior be the leader of that group Alabama returns two experienced centers uh, it'll be one of the great competitions, I think, of the spring and fall camp as Seth McLaughlin versus Darian Dalcourt. Both have extensive experience in big games. So you have to think center's going to be better. Javion Cohen may return and play left guard if they don't kick him out to tackle. Uh, last year was his first year. Uh, it was, it, you know, he really had to kind of, he was thrown in the deep end with no floaties, you know, a year ago. Uh, he's just learning. Uh, and, and now he's got that year of experience behind him. Now he can just kind of focus on improving and, and being a better player. Uh, I, I think for Alabama to be better, though, uh, there's going to have to be significant strides from young players. Uh, J I'm going to name three or four. J.C. Latham, Terrence Ferguson, Tommy Brockermeyer, maybe Damian George even. Um, guys like that, for Alabama to improve from last year, those guys, a couple of them, are going to have to make significant strides or Alabama can bring in someone from the portal, as Clint reported this week or talked about this week. Uh, Taylor Steen, the starting left tackle at Vanderbilt, he'll be making a visit to Alabama about partway through spring practice. He's a guy that's been a starter in this league for a long time. I think if Alabama feels in these early spring practices that there haven't been steps forward by the J.C. Lathams, the Tommy Brockermeyers, the Damian Georges, uh, and they're like, you know what? They're not as good as the Vandy kid is. So we, we, we need to bring in this Vandy kid. If possible, if the kid chooses Alabama, he's got other good options. So uh, uh, that's just kind of how, how I feel about it. I know that didn't answer the question specifically, but my answer is yes, it can be better, but it's dependent on younger players making significant strides this spring and summer. Here's the difference for – looking at Alabama's offensive line projections or possibilities compared to a lot of other teams. There are so many spots where we're saying, we don't know. I don't know who's going to emerge at left tackle. You know, it could be JC Latham. It could be JV and Cohen. You know, they could figure out, you know, halfway through spring, Hey, we're, we're not really getting the production that we want out of some of these spots. And a guy like Tyler Steen can come in and really benefit the offensive line, bring some experience. We are going to really press when he comes on this visit to get him and sell him on Alabama, you know, so it could be Tyler Steen. It could be Amari kite. You know, uh, that's another possibility. It could be Tommy Brockermeyer. 
uh, he could end up, you know, making some strides in his development. You look at right tackle. Is it Damian George? Is it Amari Kite? Is it Tyler Booker? Is it J.C. Latham uh, at left guard? Kind of the same thing, depending on what happens with J.V. and Cohen. This is the way that I look at it. A lot of times you don't know who is going to step up into a particular position, and you worry about that because you don't really see – you see options, but you don't feel great about the options. I think there's some development that needs to be made – but Alabama, to think that they're, they've got all these, you know, Terrence Ferguson, Amari Kite, Damian George, Tommy Brockermeyer, Tyler Booker, Elijah Pritchett, uh, you know, the possibility of a, a Tyler Steen. It, they have all – to think that none of those guys are going to be able to take positive steps in their development, if they don't, that is a reflection of the offensive line coach. That is a reflection of your evaluation process from a recruiting standpoint. There's no way when you're Alabama and you're recruiting the talent that you're recruiting to think that that many misses can happen all in the same group that were former highly recruited players. I doubt that happens, which is why I'm optimistic about Alabama's offensive line. When I look and I say, I got question marks all over the place, but it's not really a question mark of who, you know, like, oh, I, I, I don't see anybody that I believe can stand up and, and take the starting job. It's I see three or four guys at pretty much every spot that I think could definitely step up and take the starting job. So now it's just a matter of getting those guys. Which ones is it going to be? You know, and I think that the way that I'm viewing it, and we'll talk about this more during the position previews next week, it'll probably be pretty defensive line heavy uh, in that episode because we are going ahead and covering the offensive line pretty extensively here, and we just don't want to repeat ourselves a ton. But uh, the way that I view it is this. I view it as Alabama having two locked-in starters, Emil Ikior and Javian Cohen. Those two guys are going to be starting somewhere. Ikior, it's possible that he could, you know, start at center. I doubt it, though. It just feels like there's been so many times Alabama's needed a center. You thought they might try a guy like Ikior there because he was a center coming out of high school, and he hasn't really – they haven't made that move. And so that makes me think that they like him at guard. I think he starts either right guard or left guard, one of those two spots. Javian Cohen, I could see him starting pretty much anywhere. You know, he could stay at left guard where he's comfortable. He could kick out to left tackle. He could maybe even play right tackle. But I think he stays on the left side if I had to guess. I think he's either left guard or left tackle. Those two guys are, are starting. Strong candidates. One of these, at least one of these guys, maybe both, but at least one of these two guys is going to be a starter. Seth McLaughlin and Darian Dalcourt. It's possible that McLaughlin could end up playing left guard. I don't really see Dalcourt much as a guard. I see him strictly as a center. Uh, but McLaughlin has played some guard, so I could see him playing left guard, Cohen playing left tackle, Dalcourt playing center, or I could see Seth McLaughlin starting at center, Darian Dalcourt not starting. But those would be two guys, I would say one one of those, if not both of those, are going to be starters. Strong candidates. We can't forget about Ke uh, Kendall Randolph. Uh, he was brought back. I think he was brought back to play offensive line. He was projected to be the starting right tackle all the way until like the day before the Miami game when Jimmy reported that Chris Owens was kicking out from center. But J.C. Latham is a guy also that you can't forget about. Think he's going to, you know, he could start at right guard, left guard, left tackle, right tackle. Think that he's a very strong possibility to be a starter, and, and I just don't know where that's going to be. And then you've got to throw in the, the potential question mark in Tyler Steen. If Alabama adds him, he's not being added to be a depth guy. He's going to start somewhere. So that would be another candidate that I would look at. Dark Horses, Damian George saw some of him, Amari Kite. He got a little bit of action. Where's he at? Former top 100 player, former top 80 prospect, uh, former top 10 tackle in his class, former very highly regarded player. And I think he's kind of been forgotten about, but I don't think that we should. And then the unknowns. These are the guys that are former 
very highly talented, highly recruited prospects coming out of high school. Tyler Booker, true freshman, definitely think he can be in the mix somewhere, left tackle, any of the four outside of center. And I've talked about that quite a bit. Terrence Ferguson, like you mentioned, Tommy Brockermeyer, you know, Jaden Roberts, those kind of players would be in that next tier. So that's just a ton of options, man. And, and then you also can't forget about Elijah Pritchett. It's possible that he could, you know, step up. And you still got Tanner Bowles and James Brockermeyer and, you know, other candidates who could get, you know, into the mix maybe. But that's kind of how I'm viewing it right now. And I'm not really going to take a guess at this point who's going to line up where because it's a complete guess. And I just think that we at least need to see some of spring or get some reports coming out of spring saying, okay, you know, J.C. Latham's been lining up with the first-team left tackle. You know, as, as long as they're trying him out there, it's like, okay, they believe in his transition going from right guard to left tackle just like Alex Leatherwood. If he's going to, if he's playing right tackle out the gate, it's like, okay, they probably want to keep him on the right side. He played right guard as a freshman. They want to keep him on the right side to keep everything dominant. You know, the transition from right guard to right tackle is a lot easier because everything's still on the right side. So I need to hear and see a little bit of that stuff before I feel super comfortable discussing who's going to line up where and trying to predict it. There's just, I'm doing a lot of oars right now. Next question on the list, give me the last one because we've run a little bit long because this might be a little bit of a conversation. But Walker on Twitter asked, hey, Clint, had a question about possible pod systems and conferences. This one is twofold. If you could create a pod of four teams for Alabama, who would you put in it and why? Second part, realistically, who else would be in a pod with Alabama? And would there be any real challengers to win the pod? Ooh, that is a good one. Uh, I'm assuming, you got to assume a lot. I mean, it was a really good question, and, and th- this will be answered by the SEC sometime in the next two years, <laughs> if not three years, uh, when, when Texas and Oklahoma get here. Uh, I do, I just want to say I agree with the, the, that as of today, I believe it will be a pod system. I think it'll be four, four team pods primarily utilized for scheduling purposes. And you will play the teams in your pod every year. Uh, those will be your annual opponents. And then, then uh, the other uh, 12 opponents in the league, uh, you'd play on a rotational basis. Uh, and, and it'd be a quick rotation. So you'd actually see every other team in the league uh, at least every three or four, well, once at least every three, if not four years. So if that's basically what he's asking and what four teams would be in Alabama's pod, uh, one is definitely going to be Auburn because I don't think the SEC wants to lose the annual Alabama-Auburn game. Um, secondly, when, when you look around the league, uh, the pods have to be divided up with you know with with a lot of attention paid to the the annual opponents uh and it just makes sense to me that that it it would be Ole Miss and Mississippi State you know in the other uh, you know with Alabama and Auburn in the sense that they have an annual game uh Alabama's played Mississippi State every year for for 100 years they're very close in proximity uh but but you know if you have a Mississippi State in the pod you sort of need Ole Miss to me to me that's what makes the most sense I think a lot of fans around the league will be really upset if that's the pod, though, because they're going to say Alabama's so dominant and these other three teams aren't good enough. Well, I mean, are you really going to put Alabama, Georgia, Texas, and Oklahoma in a pod? I mean, how, how tough does it have to be? Uh, Alabama is going to play those teams um, most years, uh, you know, with the rotation. So 
it's a really difficult thing to do. You almost have to sit down with pen and paper and try to work it out yourself. But Alabama and Auburn are going to share a pod. Who are, who are the other two? Um, I, I tend to think some of these Big 12 teams are all going to be in a pod because they have historical rivalries. I think Texas and Oklahoma will be in, in a pod together. You have to be real careful about who you put, though, in the rest of that pod. My, my guess is Missouri and Arkansas, you know, and boy, that makes a pretty tough pod to me. But, you know, there, there's a long history of Missouri and Arkansas uh, playing Texas and Oklahoma, especially Texas. Uh, and, and, and neither Missouri nor Arkansas have a real traditional rival, you know, in the SEC. But gosh, what a uh, what a, a brew. And maybe Texas A&M goes in with Texas. But if you put in Oklahoma, Texas and Texas A&M, that's just too hard. That's just too tough. So I don't know. It, it's it's a puzzle. It's a little bit like a Rubik's Cube. But my answer today, guys, is Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State. If I'm wrong, Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, and LSU, because Ole Miss and LSU have a rivalry, too. Keep, keep in mind that I think if Alabama and Auburn are in a pod, the other two teams you put in have to be two teams that traditionally play each other, because that's why you have Alabama and Auburn in, right? So – it's Ole Miss and Mississippi State, or it's Ole Miss and LSU. And if you divide up Ole Miss and Mississippi State, are they they're not going to play every year? So I, I think Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State. But it is really tough. Uh, Sankey's going to earn his uh, seven figures uh, coming up with that stuff. I do think that the pod system ends up happening. And, you know, you've convinced Oklahoma and Texas to come over. And are you doing that looking at the SEC, particularly the SEC West, but also, I mean, you could look at the East as well. Right now, the only program that you don't feel like has the right coach in place, that, that might not have the right coach in place, and that you feel like is not going to be a tough team to play, even though they can be on any given Saturday, don't get me wrong, because of the program they are, but it's, it's Auburn. You're not sure about Brian Harson, but Mississippi State can cause you problems because you got Mike Leach and the way that he runs his offense is not a way that a lot of teams are going to do it. It's kind of like the opposite of the triple option where, you know, it's just for that one week, it's a, it's a lot to prepare for, and you're preparing for passing attacks every week. So it's, it is a little bit easier, but it's a different style of passing attack with not a whole lot of runs. So you're really dropping eight, uh, you know, and, and not really – point being, it's a difficult team to play. It can be a difficult team to play. Arkansas, Ole Miss, LSU with Brian Kelly, with the talent they're going to have at their, their disposal, Texas A&M, Ole Miss, Alabama – across the board what do you think enticed Oklahoma and Texas to come into the SEC you get to be in the best you know conference but I think that the pod system hey you can win the SEC West or you can win the SEC North if that's the division that you're in or whatever the divisions are called you know you can you don't have you'll have three other teams that you're competing against rather than pretty much seven or I guess at that point it would be eight or seven others I guess it'd be eight per division if you have a two division system Instead of having to compete with seven other teams to win your division, you're competing with three others. You know, I think that's a lot more enticing to, you know, big-time programs like Texas and Oklahoma, especially if they can get to a point like some people have suggested that say, hey, if they break it up into four, then pretty much whoever wins each division from the SEC, we might get to a point where they get automatic bids to the playoffs. That's four of the 12 spots when they eventually get there. So then Oklahoma and Texas, all they have to worry about is beating the other two team, you know, the other team, which is Texas or Oklahoma, and then the other two teams that are in your your little pod. So that's I do think that that is a very strong possibility that they're going to move to four 
pods instead of having two divisions. I think now once you start getting to eight teams, I mean, that's entire conferences have 10 and you're about to have eight and two divisions. I just highly doubt that's going to be the case. It's going to make it too watered down. It's going to make it too difficult. And, you know, the, the big thing is, hey, if you don't win the SEC West, are you telling me that you're going to put a team in the playoffs that didn't even win the West? It can happen, but it's like a knock. But if you're the team that comes out in the SEC North, then, hey, that's, you know, you've accomplished something. It's, it's you've won the, you know, a, a division. And then how do you determine who gets to the SEC championship? They might do away with SEC championship altogether at that point. Not saying that they would, but I think it's possible. But it's also just the two best teams, the two highest ranked teams of those four division winners will play for the SEC championship. I don't know. I just think that's what's going to happen. So to the question, this is kind of how I view it. I think Alabama and Auburn, like you said, they're going to be in the same pod. I think it's one of two. I think they're either going to be in a pod with Ole Miss and Mississippi State, or I think they're going to be in a pod with Tennessee and Vanderbilt. Tennessee and Vanderbilt's more, the more popular one because of the way that it works out for the rest of the pods. So it would be Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt. So you keep that in-state rivalry with Tennessee and Vanderbilt going. You keep the Alabama rivalry game, the Iron Bowl game going as well. And then the other division uh, divisions, you can have Arkansas, LSU, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State. Keep the uh, Egg Bowl in the same division. In another division, you could have Texas, Texas A&M, Oklahoma, and Missouri. Missouri is kind of one of the lower-rated programs, so that might be a throwing them a bone, but Texas, Texas A&M, and Oklahoma would be a tough division. And then the, the final one, you would have Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and Kentucky. And that would be, you would keep the you know, world's largest outdoor cocktail party thing going. Can't call it that anymore, but I don't care. But Kentucky's also been pretty good. Now, here's what I had originally suggested when this all came to be, you know, we first started talking about Oklahoma and Texas coming over and all that. I said that the SEC West should be Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and Texas A&M. You would still get the Red River rivalry uh, helping to decide that division. That would make it a lot more competitive. And Arkansas has that history with all those other schools dating back to the Southwest Conference. In the SEC West, uh, East, I had Florida, Georgia, LSU, and South Carolina. Geographically, that's a little strange um, because LSU just kind of thrown in there. And it would be super competitive. Florida, Georgia, and LSU all in the same division. I don't know how they would feel about that. And one thing that you can rest assured, bringing over Texas and Oklahoma, they're going to have to throw Georgia and Alabama a bone because it's now going to become more competitive and you want to keep your top dogs happy. So I want to keep that in mind. So would Georgia be okay with both LSU and Florida being in their division? It's a question that I have. But, you know, you have the two crossover games that would still be happening. So you could keep the Georgia and Auburn rivalry going through that and other rivalries that you would have. But the way that I kind of justified it geographically is I'm like, okay, they're not all bunched together, but they're all coastline schools. Like the state of Louisiana is a coastline state. South Carolina, uh, Florida, Georgia, all those have coastlines. So that's how I justified it in my own head. The SEC North, I had Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt. That is by far the easiest division Tennessee and Kentucky would absolutely love this division. Uh, there's no heavy hitters right now, but geographically it just makes the most sense, so I put it there. And you can even out the, the schedule difficulty with making the permanent crossover games. Like Tennessee, they're still going to get Alabama. So they're still going to have one of the toughest crossover every year games of any team in the SEC. They're also playing in an easier uh, pod. So, you know, you would get some things canceled out that way maybe. And then, like I said, I had Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State. The reason for that, wanted to keep the Iron Bowl going, wanted the, the, that particular pod division to be determined by the Iron Bowl. 
in certain situations or certain seasons. I wanted to keep Ole Miss and Mississippi State together for the same reason that I want to keep Auburn and Alabama together. And we can't forget Alabama and Mississippi State are geographically the two closest SEC teams of any of them. I mean, they're, what, 90 miles, a little less, a little more. So, to me, I think keeping Alabama and Mississippi State in the same pod from a travel perspective and saving on that cost. So, that's kind of where I built this entire thing. Started with Alabama, Oklahoma, or excuse me, Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State, and then I built it out from there. Don't think that'll necessarily happen. Like I said, the first breakdown, probably more realistic, but that's how I had it. So I hope that answers your question. So, Jimmy, it's going to do it. Do you have any more thoughts on this or anything else that we've talked about today or just any more thoughts in general? I would just like to emphasize, I mean, the pod stuff is fun. It's very complicated and difficult. But, again, I think it'll be created for scheduling purposes, uh, I don't think it's going to be like the winner of this pot. I, I don't think there's going to be semifinals and finals for an SEC championship. I, I, I think the pods for scheduling and then the SEC championship will be played between the two teams uh, with the best conference record. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, and and that's, you know, like I said, it's possible that they could, if they're adding more playoff games, I could see them if they're going to more of this super conference pod system. I could see them doing away with conference championship games. If, if everybody is getting automatic bids, if you eventually get to that point, which I'm not saying that they necessarily would, I'm not guaranteeing that. I'm saying that if that happened, where if you win the SEC North, the, the West, the South, the East, whatever, you're automatically getting into the playoff. What's the point in playing a conference championship game at that point? Like, what do you, what do you settle at that point? Everybody's won their divisions, and now it's really – it's conference – I, and I could be wrong. Maybe conference championships still mean a lot to people. I know Alabama winning it this past year, that still means something. But at the same time, do Alabama fans really brag and care that they won the SEC when they lost the national championship? So if it becomes more and more, if you expand the playoffs and more of the focus goes on the playoffs, I think conf- winning your conference, I mean, you could, and you could just simply hand, you know, it's kind of like basketball, the, the regular season winning, the, like Auburn just won the SEC if I'm not mistaken, in basketball, and the tournament hadn't even started because they won the regular season. You can make that for football where you don't play a conference game. It's just the team with the best winning percentage in the SEC or whatever for that year. They're automatically SEC champions. You could do it that way. I'm not, I, don't, I have no idea. Jimmy, there's a thousand possibilities here, oh. and we're just trying to, you know, I, we were asked a question, gave our thoughts on it, but I'm sure there's a million things I'm not thinking about. Thank goodness I'm not in Greg Sankey's shoes or anybody that's in this you know, they actually have to sit down and, hey, let's try to think of everything. Because if I had to do that, I mean, it'd right. take me months. So we're doing the best we can over here. Work on it a lot. They work on it a lot. They, they didn't, like, add Texas and Oklahoma went, okay, and then 24 hours later I have the they They've worked on this a lot. And I think it's kind of they've accepted the fact that it's lose-lose, that they'll whatever the best thing they come up with is what they'll do but it will be, people are going to complain. They're going to say, you should have done this. You should have done that. You should have done that. Uh, They're, they're picking what they believe is the best uh, knowing that there will be a wall of complaints because they're like you said, Clint, there's a thousand ways to do this. And each one of them is going to be flawed in some way or another. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think priority, and I'm just speaking candidly, I'm sure that Greg Sankey listens to all 14 teams right now. And I'm sure he'll listen to all 16 teams when Oklahoma and Texas join the conference, but who would you rather have upset, Alabama or Vanderbilt? 
You know, you're going to try to keep your big dogs happy. And Oklahoma and Texas coming in, they're going to be a big dog. And the only big dog that I think that you won't be necessarily able to keep happy is Texas A&M because they're just not happy that Texas is coming in regardless. So, right. uh, but I think that that will be a priority. Uh, you know, it's just making sure because, you know, Nick Saban, he's complained about stuff before and he's able to get stuff done because Alabama, I mean, they, in a lot of ways, they are the SEC right now. And Georgia's become that as well. Um, so, just like any other conference, you take care of your top guys. Ohio State took care of, uh, or excuse me, the Big Ten took care of Ohio State a couple years ago in 2020. It's just, that's what ends up happening. But anyways, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Bam on 3 show. We ran long. That's what happens when you take two weeks off and you haven't really or hashed out a lot of this stuff. We'll be talking more next week, doing the position previews. we got a couple more mailbag questions that we'll sprinkle in to some of them. So expect a couple of those to go long as well. Appreciate you guys tuning in as always, and we will talk to you guys soon. Thrilled to be back. And, uh, Jimmy, I appreciate, as always, you talking to me this morning, and we will have to do it again soon. Heck, yeah. Next week can be a big, big week. The week spring practice is sort of starting. So uh, it's football season again starting next week. Absolutely. And it's possible. It just depends on what happens today. If anything standout-ish happens at the combine that, that we feel like is worth talking about, we might be able to – and if Jimmy's not able to join me, I can get something out on it tomorrow, maybe just a, a kind of recapping. But the problem is you're going into Saturday and Sunday uh, as well with the combine and, and Bama players. So might just wait till Monday and make that a super long podcast, do a couple we'll, of position previews. We'll discuss it on the board quite a bit. Yeah. And Clint stories up and Clint's also on the board. Uh, we did a fun uh, guest Slade Bolden's 40 time this morning that I encourage all of you guys to participate in. Uh, I think Slade has the most interesting 40 time. Uh, because I knew there would be a wide range of guesses, and uh, I have not been disappointed. You said four, five, seven. I believe so. Yes, I would say four, five, seven to four, five, nine. That is somewhere just a tick under four, six. I don't think he runs anything special. If he comes on and runs a four, but you know, sub four, five. I, I mean, if if he runs in the four fours, the discussion of whether Slade will be drafted is over. He will definitely be drafted if he runs in the four fours. If he runs over four six two four six three, if he's over that, I would almost go not drafted. Yeah, but but anywhere between four five two and four six two is uh, I think sort of that gray area where uh, he might go. He might go. He runs in the four fours, dude. He's an NFL football player. There's no doubt in my mind he is. Yeah, and right now, you know, I'm putting him somewhere between rounds five and seven. You know, I could see maybe a team pulling the trigger in the fifth round, but really I think sixth round will be the sweet spot. And could also see him dropping to the seventh round. If he runs in the four fours, I think it's possible. They, he's, I, I would a much more feel confident in him being a, a fifth round pick and wouldn't be completely shocked if he went uh, fourth round. But still yeah, think he's going day three. Ceiling of fourth round with yes. a four four. A ceiling of fourth round. Yes. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're, you know, I, I guess four, five, seven for a reason. You're right there at that same time. And and I think that's going to put him in the maybe sixth round, maybe seventh round. We'll be shocked if he's an undrafted free agent. Uh, but in the end, it's about making the team, you know, uh, one third, I believe one third of all players in the NFL were undrafted free agents. And when you're like, boy, they sure screw up that draft. No, it's math. It's math. Each team, there's only seven rounds and 53 roster spots. So there's a lot more undrafted free agents 
that are signed by NFL teams. It's just a matter of an overwhelming number of undrafted free agents in the in, in NFL camps. That's why that number is what it is. But it's also uh, a good carrot on a stick to people like Slate. Hey, if you don't get drafted, hey, the league's made up of one third of undrafted guys. So there's still a path in. 100%, especially now that they've expanded you know, uh, practice squads from eight players to 10, you know, that's uh, an extra 64 players right there uh, in yep. the NFL with 32 teams that are now getting to, to stick on a practice squad. And, and, and I mean, I, and I made this joke on Twitter. I mean, everybody knew Najee Harris was getting drafted by the Steelers last year. Uh, everybody knew that the Patriots, if Mac Jones made it down to 15, the Patriots were taking him. I actually had them trading up in, in one of my most recent mock drafts and they ended up just standing pat and able to get him. But uh, this year, Slade Bolden being a Patriot seems pretty darn likely. And I understand sure. that that's just the, the stereotype, you know, Wes Welker, Julian Edelman, Slade Bolden, you know, not saying he's on that level, but just saying the, the short slot white guy that's kind of more shifty and quick than fast. But there were so many other teams that could have drafted Najee last year, but it just, you felt like he was a Pittsburgh Steeler. Mac Jones, you felt like he was a Patriot. Slade Bolden, I'm sorry for anybody that just, oh, he was a huge bust at Alabama. Feels like a Patriot to me. Don't know where they're going to get him. Could get him as an undrafted free agent. Could be his practice squad guy. Could end up having a great rapport with with Mac Jones and ends up being, you know, a, a Gary Dieter type who with uh, Patrick Mahomes where they built a strong rapport early and he's been on the freaking practice squad ever since. Uh, you could see that or he can end up working his way to the 53. Who knows what what will end up happening. But anyways, Jimmy, as always, I appreciate you hopping on here with me and talking about this. We'll be coming back and doing another episode soon talking about the combine probably is going to be next week if i'd be honest but you know either way i'm looking forward to it man and we'll talk soon this has been another episode of the bam on three show and i'm your host clint lamb hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus